0: If you've uh, seen, anyone seen the program Grey's Anatomy, did any of you watch that medical program? Oh, all six of you, that doesn't really work, does it? It's basically a program set in a hospital in the States, and it's an exploration, if you like, of the human body, and how it works, and how it connects, and how life comes, and what do you do when it all breaks down, and how do you protect life. But really, as well as that, it's uh, one of these kind of explorations into relationships and life and how do you get on and how does it all work and etc. And so I just want to kind of twist the the title a little bit and call it Grace Anatomy because that's what we want to do over the next five weeks. We want to explore how does this thing called grace work? How does it connect? How do you keep the life in it? What happens when it doesn't work? Because really it's not all about you know, the body, it's about life and it's about how do we do this thing called Christian living and, and living. And I don't know what you think of when you hear the word grace. It's probably one of the most famous Christian words if you like. But what do you think of and perhaps you, you might think of what you say before meals when visitors are there. Uh, like the, the old story, which you know really well about the, the family that invited the new couple from church to come round for a meal and wanted to impress them. So, of course, they sit round a meal and they say to the little son, Jimmy, Jimmy, why don't you say grace? And Jimmy goes, uh. You know, go on, Jimmy, say grace like we always do. Jimmy still goes, uh. And they say, just say what you heard your dad say at breakfast. He says, all oh, right. God, do we have to have those awful people for dinner? <laughs> Is what he said. So I don't know whether you... You think of, <laughs> you, some of you are going like, oh, I've been there <laughs> when we've come. <laughs> so, so I don't know if that's what you think of a grace. Perhaps you think of grace in relation to when you see someone like a dancer or an athlete or a musician, you think they're so graceful. Perhaps you think of, I owe lots of money, would somebody give me a period of grace? <laughs> I don't know what you think of. But you know, grace is not the same as justice and it's not the same as mercy. You see, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting more than you deserved. Let me say it again, justice is getting exactly what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting far more than you ever could deserve. Well, I thought about a way of illustrating it and I, and I thought I'd use Dan because he's an easy target. Uh, so <laughs> it's not embarrassing. So I want you to imagine that Dan is hurtling down the motorway, okay, the M5 and he's going at 79 miles an hour and all of a sudden joy uh, greets him as he hears this siren in uh, uh, behind him and of course uh, one of the elders pulls no one <laughs> policeman pulls him over. <laughs> policeman pulls him over and says, "Excuse me, sir, did you know that you were speeding?" And Dan says, "Yes, I did." Justice means that he gets a speeding ticket, three points on his license and 60-pound fine. So I've been told. (laughs) Okay, that's justice. (laughs) I'll wait. That's justice. Mercy is that the officer says, but because I'm feeling in a good mood today, I'm going to let you off. That's mercy, isn't it? Justice, he broke the law. That's what he deserves. He deserves a speeding ticket, three points on his license and 60-pound fine. Mercy is I'll let you off grace is this. He said, Dan, you're driving a, an Astra, Fox Astra. Have the keys to my brand new Audi. Why don't you have this? In- that's grace, isn't it? Dan's already receiving that word. Look, look at him and say, yes, Lord. See, that's grace because justice was, you should have had the fine. Mercy was, we'll let you off. Grace is, you never even imagined this. You've been given so much more than you ever could imagine. That's what grace is all about. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at grace anatomy, but we're not going to do it scientifically. We're not going to go the medical route where we dissect the whole thing. We're going to go the story route. We're going to tell you some stories of grace. And as we look at stories together, we believe that we will understand what grace is all about. We'll have a look at grace. We'll have a look at it in our own lives. We'll have a look at it in our relationships. We'll have a look at it in our world and in our society. And our hope and prayer is at the end of five weeks, not only are we inspired again and we say, wow, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But we are committed as a community of people to being grace carriers in our world. How many of you know our world needs it? Our world needs grace. Your workplace needs it. Your job needs it. Your communities need it. Your factory needs it. Your college, university needs it. Your family need it. Our nation needs it. The nations of the world, we need grace. We need grace so much. So we're going to look at the story of grace. Let me. Before we look at the Bible, let me read this story to you. I read this uh, in a book which I read a couple of years ago. and. Just blown away, and you try and put yourself in a similar scenario. Listen to this. Recently, I met a woman who'd been divorced when her ex-husband told her that he was gay, that he had AIDS, and that he wanted to live with his partner. A few years later, as the disease progressed, she felt compassion for her former husband and felt God wanted to help care for him as the disease worsened. So she did just that. With her husband's permission, she moved back in, not as his wife, but as his nurse. And she cared for him as the disease progressed. I can't imagine what it took for her to give of herself in that way. I don't think her obedience should become a standard for others, but she talked about it as one of the greatest experiences of her life. Before he died, her husband and his partner came to repentance and faith. What's more, after her former husband's death, she stayed on to take care of his former partner as he also died. While she was doing that, other AIDS patients came to the door and asked for help. During the next decade, listen to this, she cared for more than 60 other patients and watched them all come to faith. Isn't that phenomenal? Today she's converting an abandoned hospital to extend that care and she travels the world helping people with AIDS and those who seek to care for them. And then the author says this on the end, love will take you further than law ever will, and what's more, you'll do it reflecting the very love that you've received from Jesus. Isn't that phenomenal? Just to try and put yourself in that position where you're given that news as, as, a, as a wife or as a, as a husband, and then not only do you have to get over that, but then you actually extend grace to that person and to others beyond who you never even knew. It's, that's grace, isn't it? Justice, mercy, Grace. We're going to look in the Bible. I realise that as we come to look at this, that this must be my favourite Old Testament story. Because this is about the fourth or fifth time that I've spoken on it since I've been at this church. Okay, So some of you may remember it. But it's in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you want to go there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And this is the story, as we put it up, if we put it up, of Mephibosheth. Which, if you've never seen that name before, it looks more like an anagram or something off countdown, doesn't it? Do you know what I mean? Give me a consonant, please, Carol. But it's actually a name, Mephibosheth. So just to get you in the mood for that, why don't you turn to the person next to you and practice saying Mephibosheth. Okay, it's a great name. I know that there are <laughs> there are some of you expectant mothers out there. I think it's a great name, all right? I just want to leave it with you. you. You would be... You would be, your child would be the only one of that name in the class. I prophesy that right now, okay? How you ever teach them to spell it, that's a whole different deal. But isn't it a fantastic name, Mephibosheth? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to read through 2 Samuel 9. We'll read through the whole chapter and then I'll just pause and make some comments about the text. And then we'll look at what has this all got to do with us. And I'll rattle through eight things that this has all got to do with us. And then we'll just see where God leads us. So let's read it and I'll stop and comment on the way. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We could stay in that verse for an hour. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? King David, at this point in his life, he's all-powerful, all-conquering, the king, pinnacle, everything's great. Wakes up one morning and says, is anyone left in the house of Saul, Jonathan, Saul, who I can show kindness, for Jonathan's sake. Now the word kindness in the Hebrew is the word hasid, which is a very important word and very difficult to to interpret and to define. The New Testament version of the word is the word in Greek, is the word agape or, or agape, that we know this supreme kind of love. That God has for us, and that's the word. It's very difficult to define it. Let me give you what I think is a a good definition, but it's but it's short. Kindness or grace is the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, unrestrained, furious love of our Father. That amazing. So, see, when we hear the word in English, is there anyone today that I can be kind to? Is there anyone I can help across the road? That's how we think about kindness. But this word doesn't mean that. This is a covenant word. This is a deep word. This is, about, this is about extravagant, relentless, furious, passionate love. And David says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul, in the house of Jonathan? Now, now you need to understand the background here. When, when, Sam, uh, when David first came on the scene, Saul was the king. And remember the story from your Sunday school days, if those of you that went. But you remember the story, David and Goliath. When David kills Goliath, he comes onto the national scene. Eventually, Saul gets threatened by David and, and Saul spends years pursuing him and it becomes enemies. Then Saul and his son Jonathan die on the battlefield. David becomes king. Now, under the law of the time and under the customs of the time, how things were done, justice would mean that the winner, David, would kill all the members of the house of his enemy, Saul. Sounds barbaric to us. We have to understand the day in which history is developing. That was what happened. Justice was that you wipe out all your enemies. Mercy was that you let them off. Grace was a whole different deal. And David wakes up one morning and says, do you know what? If there's anyone left in that house of Saul, not that I can show justice to, because that means, not that I can show mercy to, but I want to show grace to them. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And I don't think we understand the power of this, because we don't understand the power of the words. We don't understand the power of what was actually happening. This is also a revelation into what it means to live as a person of grace. Because I'm convinced that the older that I get, the more selfish I can become. And the more my prayers can reflect what I want for me, rather than looking around at other people. But you see, David wakes up saying, I am so blessed. You fill me with so much. Who can I bless now? Isn't that amazing? I, I have a dream, said somebody. I have a dream that, you know, one day my life would be live, live like that. It isn't there at the moment, but that every day I'd wake up and say, is there anyone that I can show grace to because I have received grace? Wouldn't it be amazing if we as a community of people, as a church, woke up every day saying, right, we're off to work. And not like, oh, we're off to work, but we're off to work. There's got to be somebody today that I can show grace to. Is that a revelation? Or is it that we wake up every day and say, oh, we're not off to work? And God, when are you going to do this for me? And when are you going to do that for me? And our lives become so selfish and so self interested and invested, and we forget that there's a world around. But David wakes up saying, Is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? See, David entered into a covenant relationship with Jonathan, the son of Saul. And because of that covenant relationship, he said, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be gracious to you and all your kind. And that's the first verse. (laughs) I'll need to move on. And so in verse 2, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David and the king said, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness or God's grace? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Now, bear in mind, what the king wants to do is to bring whoever he finds from the house of Saul into the palace. But when he hears that the only one left is Mephibosheth, who's crippled in both feet, probably a thought went through his mind is there anyone else? Because I'm not sure he's thinking that actually that kind of person isn't really going to fit in the palace. It's not going to blend into the palace. Uh, and it gets worse, really, because he goes on and he says, Well, where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He's at the house of Machia, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Again, a whole load of weird words and names. But the, the house of Machia, that word Machia means sold. It's like when, when, when your house is sold and you get that big S-O-L-D, capital, sold. It's gone, finished. Lodabar, the place where he's living, the word Lodabar literally means barren or without pasture. So this guy who's crippled in both feet lives in a house called Sold in a place called Barren, without pasture. Getting a feel of where he's at in his life. The words in the Bible are all important. And, and so, and so David's saying, so that's the guy that's left. So that's the guy that I can show grace to. He's crippled in both feet. That isn't going to look good around the palace because we all like perfection. Society hasn't changed that much, has it? We all like perfection and beauty and achievement. That doesn't feel like that. And he lives in a place called sold, in a place that's barren without pasture. And, and I need to bring him to the palace. Uh, that doesn't kind of sound right. But you know, here's the amazing thing. This man Mephibosheth lived all his life with labels and stigma. He's crippled. He's in a house called Sold, in a place that's barren without pasture. He lives all of his life with labels and with stigma. And yet, in verse 4, in the New Living Translation version of the Bible, it says that David said, well, where is this son? Isn't that amazing? So here's this man that lives all his life with labels and stigma. Where is this son? The king says, where is this son? Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you. I wonder what labels and stigma you've lived with through your life watched a um, film on Friday night. Some of you have been to see it, The King's Speech. You've got to see the film. It's just an amazing film about King George VI and his issue with stammering all the way through his life. Very powerful and very moving. You imagine being in a situation like that when you, know, you have to speak before people and you can't. And that label that was over his life. And you've probably got labels over yours. I know I have. Labels and stigma. Perhaps you might think, well, divorce, that's me. That's the sign over my house, or single, or unemployed, or sick, or whatever. But you know, whatever the label or stigma over your life is, the king calls you son or daughter. Do you know that? And that's phenomenal. That's grace. That whatever the label or stigma over your life, the king calls you son or daughter. So then in verse 5, he says, so David had him brought to the palace. Now you need to understand, he didn't come himself. He had him brought to the palace. We'll come back to that later. And then I want you to try and imagine the scene. Imagine the tension of the scene. The tension is palpable. Because Mephibosheth gets a knock on his door and he he stumbles to the door on his crutches. And someone says, you need to come to the palace. He's like, what? You need to come to the palace of King David. But that's the enemy of my grandfather, Saul. And justice means that now I'm about to die. So, so, So they bring him to the palace. And you can imagine the fear is palpable. His tension is in the air. His justice means I'm going to die. Perhaps there's a 0.001% 0.0, 0, 0, 0, 0, chance that I'll get mercy today and he'll let me off. But nowhere in Mephibosheth's brain did he ever think that he was going to get grace. He was expecting justice. He was hoping for mercy. But he got grace. <laughs> and, and it says... It says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. Of course he did. He's, he's freaked out. He, he's worried for his life. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. And then, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Here's the Audi. It's like you came expecting to get the ticket and the punishment. You were hoping I'd let you off. Here's the Audi and far more than that. It's grace, isn't it? What an incredible story of grace. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, when he says, don't be afraid, you know, that, that's a mirror of the New Testament phrase, fear not, don't be afraid. Because even if you're carried and brought to the palace, how many of you know, we still need assurance that we, that we belong there. So many of us as Christians, we still need to hear that assurance that we belong there, don't we? Don't be afraid, fear not, you belong. Because deep down we think we don't really belong there. Why would God want me to sit at his table with his sons and daughters? And four times in this passage, David says, there's a place at my table for you. Four times, let's read it together. Don't be afraid, he says that. Verse eight, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should know is a dead dog like me? He's got some self-esteem issues here. You should know he's a dead dog like me. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. It's like God is trying to really press it home. That grace is all about a seat at the king's table. Like one of the king's sons, and he was crippled in both feet. I just think this is a phenomenal story, don't you? It's just an amazing story of grace. David could have sent him money. Do you know what I mean? Which is often what we do, isn't it? You know, well, you know, I want to show grace, I can send money. But he didn't send money, he gave of himself. And he got the guy to come and to eat around his table. Yeah, I won't go there. It's a fantastic story, but what on earth has it got to do with us? Let me give you eight things. Number one, we were all born into royalty. Did you know that? It's so again, as I watched that film on Friday, thinking and there's this nervous king, I don't want to give away anything, here, but doesn't really want to be king. And he doesn't want to be in that position and he's fighting against it, but he is in it. And we are all born into royalty. Not that kind of royalty, but we're all born into royalty because we're all created in the image of God. It says in Genesis 1, 26, so God said, let us make man in our own image. Every person on planet earth is created in the image of God. When you lock eyes with any individual, you're looking into someone who's been created in the image of God. That's why they matter and they're important. Even the people that have hurt you are made in the image of God. Even the people that have let you down are made in the image of God. Even the people you despise or dislike are made in the image of God. We are all born into royalty. But secondly, we are all crippled as a result of a fall. How did Mephibosheth get crippled? You can read it in 2 Samuel 4 verse 4. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's the news that they had been killed by David's army. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. Because of the fall, he became crippled. Isn't that a picture? We were created in the image of God, but in Genesis 3, because we, man, chose to sin, to go away from God, to be our own gods and our own lords and our own leaders, we allowed the fall and the effects of the fall and we are all crippled spiritually because of that and in many other ways as well. Even the great Apostle Paul in Romans seven twenty four said, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the people who live really free, grace-filled lives know what they've been saved from. They know how wretched that they are or were. And they know what God has done in their life. And so they just live free, abandoned, grace-filled lives. Number three, we all deserved justice. You know, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the... Uh, 16th century German theologian. Uh, he knew what, what he was saved from. And, and he wrote a lot of hymns. I want to read a couple to you, some words. They're very old language, but let me. Just, hopefully you'll get enough of it. He writes this, Out of the depths I cry to thee, Lord God, O hear my prayer. Incline a gracious ear to me and bid me not despair. If thou rememberest each misdeed, if each should have its rightful need, Lord, who shall stand before thee? Then he says, wherefore my hope is in the Lord, my works I count but dust. I build not there, not on my works, but on his word and in his goodness trust. Up to his care myself I yield. He is my tower, my rock, my shield and for his help I tarry. Someone who knows that they deserve justice, but they've received grace. Number four, we've all been invited by the king. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come. I want you to know this morning that God wants every person on planet earth sat around his table as one of his sons. Do you know that? I don't believe that there's somehow a selected few. I believe God wants everyone to come to repentance. Not everyone necessarily will, but that's the desire of God. He wants everyone to come around the table. Number five, we are all, this is going to encourage you, helpless and hopeless. Feel good about that now, don't you? We are all in of our own selves, helpless and hopeless. We cannot get to the table on our own. That's why it's really important we understand the role of Ziba and we'll come into that later. Ziba brought Mephibosheth into the palace but Mephibosheth had to pull up a chair to the table. We cannot get into the palace and up to the table on our own. We haven't got enough of what it takes. Paul says in Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you all know that. Many of you have been Christians for years. You all know that. But the problem is, I know in my own life as Christians, we know it, but we don't live in it. We still live with the idea that we somehow have to be good enough for God to accept us at the table. In this book, which I'm quoting from a few times today, there's a, there's a bit where um, a 15-year-old girl comes back from her youth group, and she's been listening to the teaching, and she writes in a journal just three phrases. And the three phrases are this. God is good, you are bad, try harder. The message that she got was God is good, somehow we're all bad, the answer is to try harder. Do you know what? It's not just 15 year olds that, that think that that's the truth. And it's not the truth. It's not the truth. Because as hard as you try, you're never going to reach God. That's, that's the point, isn't it? We are powerless, helpless and hopeless without God's intervention in Christ Jesus. This book talks about something called the tyranny of the favour line. It's this idea that there's like an imaginary invisible line. And it's like we think that somehow this line here, anything above the line is God's favour, anything is not. So if we live here, then God's, you know, he thinks we're all right, And if we drop down, then we're not. Come to church, favour. Or or in other ways, if life's going well... Must mean God loves me. And you thought like that, I'm healed, therefore God loves me. I'm not healed. God doesn't love me. I get a new job. God loves me. I'm unemployed. God doesn't love me. Do you know what? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. And you see, when Jesus in Matthew 5 gets a whole group of of ragtag, poor, marginalized, ordinary, normal people, and we would have been in that group, okay, and he gets them all around him and he says, this is the kingdom of God, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit, blessed are you when you're merciful, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And the idea is this, you are blessed whatever the condition of your life, whatever the circumstances, there is no imaginary favour line. When I was in the States last year, I said this um, a while ago, but I don't think I did at the 11 o'clock. I was listening to this seminar of this guy that was leading, um, leading it. And he was just a local church guy, like our guys. And they'd invited, like, they got like, all the big famous Christian worship people there. Do you know what I mean? Like the ce- celebrity stuff. And then they'd invited normal church teams there that nobody ever heard of. It was really refreshing. And this one guy that was in that category um, was talking about the songs that they write in their church. And they did one of the songs and it was basically, it started off and it was all nice and predictable and, and obvious and, and it was taken from the Beatitudes, it was blessed are you when you're poor in spirit and blessed are you when this and blessed are you when that. And it chugged on and on and on and it was fine and it was great. Then all of a sudden, the lines changed from the, if you like, christian Bible words that we understand too. Blessed are you when your email box is full and you don't know which one to respond to first. Blessed are you when your boss comes in and gives you an ultimatum and you might lose your job. Blessed are you when you go to the doctor and you find a lump that you never knew was there. Blessed are you. And it's like all of a sudden, the whole thing becomes, wow, I'm blessed. Not because of the circumstances of my life, not because of the effort of my hand, but because of the goodness and the grace of my God. Isn't that amazing? supposed to be a Pentecostal church. could do a bit better than that. Isn't that absolutely amazing? The God. (laughs) There's no audience manipulation there at all. Do you notice that? And there's this idea that if we would just get above the favor line, then everything would be okay. And I remember when I used to go and and do stuff in schools like 150 years ago, um, when I was of an age where that was appropriate uh, to go in and teach at schools <laughs> um, I, I can remember trying to explain to some RE le- classes because they wanted to know well who's good enough for God and sin and all this stuff in a day when they actually talked about stuff like that in schools and I'd do this thing on the blackboard where I said tell me the worst people in history the most evil people so they'd say Hitler and you know all that kind of stuff you know all the other evil people and we'd write them on the bottom now at the top let's write the, mo- the best people the greatest people the, 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 you know, the people that do all mother. Teresa was invariably up there and Princess Diana and Dan Bennett and all this kind of thing. And, and, and so he wasn't. I won't tell you where he was. No, he was. And so what I'd say is that that's fine. So we're saying these are the bad people. These are the good people. So these make it and those don't. That's fine if the measuring stick, if the, if the, if the, the measure is the top of the board. But if the measure is the moon, we're all in trouble, aren't we? Because the reality is that even the best of us are a mile off. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we can't reach it by our own effort. But this is the great thing, that the king sends Ziba to bring Mephibosheth into the palace. That's exactly what he did when he sent Christ. When you were still powerless in your sins, Christ died for you. Isn't that amazing? You cannot get into the palace on your own. Somebody else has to get you there and his name is Jesus. And that's that's the amazing thing about this. For it is by grace you have been saved, says Paul in Ephesians 2, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Now, Ziba is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because Ziba goes out from the palace, brings Mephibosheth into the presence of the king. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 16, the Holy Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. If you're a Christian today, you became a Christian, not just because you decided to, although you did, and that's important. You became a Christian because the Holy Spirit of God reached you, touched your heart, brought you to repentance and conviction of sins, and brought you into relationship with God. Do you know that? Ziba went from the palace and found you and brought you home. That is amazing, isn't it? Crippled in both feet as a result of the four. Living in a place called Seoul, in a location called barren and without pasture. And Ziba came and said, I want to bring you to the palace. I want to take you to meet the king. I don't just want to take you to meet the king. I want you to eat with the king like one of his kids. Isn't that incredible? That's us. Number six, we've all been offered a new address. Baroness to banquet, prison to palace Sold to save. Now here's the sad thing. The start of 2011. This is true if you're a believer this morning. And if you're not, you can be. Okay? You can be. And we're not Christians because we're any better people than you. Okay? We're only Christians because we realize that we've missed it with God. And we desperately want to be with God. And we recognize what Christ has done for us. And we've accepted that. That's the only reason. But if you are a Christian this morning, you have a new address. The problem is we often live in the old one. We often live in sold, barren, without pasture when we're meant to be living in the palace at the king's table. But we often still live out there even though actually our new address is the palace. Number seven, we all have a seat at the king's table just like one of his sons. Let me read this to you and see if you can picture the scene. This is from a guy called Charles Swindle that writes about this scene and tries to imagine what it would have been like at dinner time. Now David, just so that you know, had lots of other sons and daughters. Solomon was the most famous one, but there were others as well. And we try and picture the scene. Try and picture this beautiful, family, brave, intelligent, do you know what I mean, celebrity, all this stuff. And just picture this. The dinner bell rings through the king's palace and David comes to the head of the table and sits down. In a few moments, Amnon... Clever, crafty Amnon sits to the left of David. Lovely and gracious Tamar, a charming and beautiful young woman, arrives and sits beside Amnon. Then across the way, Solomon walks slowly from his study. Precocious, brilliant, preoccupied Solomon. The heir apparent slowly sits down. And then Absalom, handsome, winsome Absalom with beautiful flowing hair, black as a raven, down to his shoulders, sits down. And this particular evening, Joab, the courageous warrior and David's commander of the troops has been invited to dinner as well. Muscular, bronzed Joab is seated near the king. Imagine the scene. It's like this is a scene that our society would die for, isn't it? It's everything that our society wants. Rich, beautiful, achievers. All that our society values. And afterwards they wait. They hear the shuffling of feet, the clump, Clump, clump of the crutches as Mephibosheth rather awkwardly finds his place at the table and slips into his seat. And the tablecloth covers his feet. I ask you, he says, did Mephibosheth understand grace? You bet your life he did. The question is, do we? You see, sat around that table, sorry to tell you, but Mephibosheth is us. I know you wanted to be the muscular bronzed one, many of you, men hopefully, okay, but (laughs) that's that's scary, but actually the one that describes us is none of those, it's Mephibosheth, who's brought, because we're all crippled as a result of the fall, but we're brought into the palace and we're given a seat just like one of David's kids. Now my question as we draw to a close is this, what stops you and I pulling up that seat to the table? Because that's the problem. Because I believe many of us do, and I believe I do. Let me give you a few things. Number one, shame and guilt stop us. You see, it's too good to be true, so it it mustn't be. Because I've done so many bad things in my life, we say, that I don't belong at that table. Do you know what I believe, having been a Christian for a while now and a Christian leader? Many of us use shame and guilt as an excuse. We use it to hide behind. We use it to protect us. We use it to become our identity. The way to get rid of guilt is to linger long enough in God's presence. Because in God's presence, eventually, the majesty and the beauty and the power of God's love for us disintegrates the guilt. But what we do and what Christians do more than anybody else is we say, oh, I feel guilty. I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to get close to God anymore. And what happens is that the guilt solidifies and the guilt becomes who we are. And we haven't got a clue who we are if we lose the guilt. And it becomes so strong that it becomes our identity and we can't live behind it. And I want to say to you, it is not who you are. It is not who you are. You are royalty. You have a seat at the king's table. Do not let shame and guilt hold you back any longer. We must get rid of it. Secondly, trust. Oh, I trust God. Do we? We can obey God and yet not really trust Him. Do you know that? Dan could tell me to do something and I can do it and not trust him. We, we can obey God, but not really trust in who God is. And I think many of us as Christians, including myself, can fall in that category. And, and so what happens with trust is that as long as God is giving us what we want, then we'll continue to do the thing. But what about when God doesn't give us what we want? Do we still love him? Huh. <laughs> And and when we obey God and not really trust Him, what happens is that we never really pull up our seat. We never come in freedom. We're always slightly wary of God. We're always slightly suspicious of God. We're always slightly scared of God. Uncle Oscar was apprehensive about his first flight on an aeroplane. His friends, eager to hear how it went, asked if he enjoyed the flight. Well commented, Uncle Oscar. It wasn't as bad as I thought be as I thought it might be. But to tell you the truth, I never did put all my weight down. (laughs) And it's just like this picture of this guy who's going to fly in this plane, but he just doesn't really trust it. So he's going to lift his feet off and not really ever put his weight down. And you know what? I believe that many of us, including me, are like that. If I really trust God, I'm going to put my weight down. Whatever may happen, I'm still going to love you. What about if I don't get healed? I'm still going to love you. What about if my husband or wife or friend doesn't get healed? Still going to love you. What about if I don't get the job that I deserve or that I think I should get? Still going to love you. What about if my kids turn out a certain way? Still going to love you. Because I trust you. Not just in what you do, but in who you are. What about fear? Fear of intimacy. God actually wants to be with us. Can you imagine that? God actually wants to be with us. And I think that if, if the picture, and I know it's all metaphor and picture, of us pulling up to the, ta- to the chair, we'd probably want to say, and here's what I've done, God. Here's my CV. Here's my portfolio. Do you know what I mean? And, and this is who I am. And this is all the exciting, important. And he says, don't give a rip about that. I'm just really glad you're here. I just want to be with you. See, this is the heart cry of the Father, is to be with us. It's to be with us. Brennan Manning, uh, not Bernard Manning, that's a whole different, different thing. Brennan Manning, who is an author... He writes this, he, he says, you will trust God only as much as you love him. And you will love him, not because you've studied him, but because you've touched him. And he has touched you. And then he says, and if you, if you love, and only if you love, will you make that final leap into the darkness. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I, I, I get inspired when I read and meet people who trust God so much that you know that they trust him with everything. Regardless of the outcome, I'm not there yet. I am not there yet, but I want to be. And then finally, hunger. What do I mean by hunger? Oh yeah, we're hungry, but we're hungry for the food, but are we interested in the chef? You see, we want God's salvation, but do we really want God? We want what comes from God's hands, but do we really want God? We want God to answer our prayers, but do we want God? And can I say, When we do this, when we live like that, we cheat ourselves out of the best bit. The best bit of a relationship with God is not healing. It's not the answers to your prayers. It's not health. It's not wealth. The best thing of a relationship with God is God. It's you and God. It's you being loved by God. You knowing that the creator of the universe who holds everything in his hand loves you with a passion that will endure not just through this life but into eternity. That's the best bit. I wonder how many of us live with that. What preoccupies our time? The things that we want God to do for us or God himself. And the final thing is this. We will all walk with a limp as a reminder of God's grace. So I want to ask the band to come back and we're going to draw to a close. Every week, we're going to do two things. We're going to invite you to come to the table of grace. Because our response is, the invitation of grace is come to the table. We're going to invite you to come to the table. I'm going to do that in in a moment. But the second thing we're going to do, as well as inviting you to come to the table of grace, we're going to challenge you to be carriers of grace you ever seen that film, Pay It Forward, you'll understand what I mean. We're going to be challenging you to be people who carry and pay grace forward in our lives. That we wake up in the morning and say, is there anyone who I can show kindness to? Because of what I've received. And you may think, what on earth is this to my right? I haven't mentioned it yet. This is a cuboid, apparently. It was four bits of wood, I thought, but apparently that's what it is. And basically what we want to do is every week in the worship or somewhere... We want to invite you to come and to write stories of grace upon that. And in your notes, you've been given like a little grace card just as a prompt and you might want to use that um, or you might want to come up next week and and just write on it or you might want to put a photograph up, which is a photograph that speaks to you about grace in your life. You might want to draw something or create something and and we don't need to like fill the whole thing, all right? The idea is to get lots of stories and snippets from people's lives. And I don't know how it will go, but over the next few weeks, as we see that fill up with stories, our hope and prayer is that as we put this into practice, we will be changed by grace. You won't be changed just by listening to my words. You will be changed when you put them into practice. When we live in grace and when we live it out. and So I want to encourage you to come every week over the next five weeks with a grace story ready to share. Stick it up on that wall. We will capture that. We will work with that. We will see what God does with that. Who knows what God will do with it? So every week, you're going to be invited to come to the table of grace and receive. And every week, you're going to be challenged to be carriers of grace in our world. And I don't know about you, but our world needs it, doesn't it? And there'll be people that you'll meet this week who are the recipients of grace from you. God has them. And God knows that you're going to be in that shop when they need you. You're going to be in that in that office, you're going to be in that street, whatever, and you will be their grace carrier. And somebody out there will be carrying grace to you this week and you'll receive it. But you know, someone once said, we cannot love effectively if we have not been loved extravagantly. And, And I sense in my own heart that there are many of us that we know where our address is, it's the palace, but we are actually living a lot of our time in sold barren and without pasture territory and I want to invite you to come to the table of grace today and just as the guys are going to start to play we're going to sing this song that we learnt last year I will stop singing this eventually I don't believe this song is a song for a series I believe it's a song for a season I believe it's bigger than a series and as we sing this song about the love of God and about the, the ravishing passionate you know, furious love that God has for us, I want to invite you to come to the table. And if you this morning, you say, do you know what? I need some of that grace. I need some of God's grace in my life. Perhaps you've been living in that land for a, a little too long and you know that really you belong at the table with the King and just come by the Spirit. The Spirit of God will draw you, but you've got to get up and you've got to walk. And then some of the ministry team want to just pray for you. They won't ask you anything. They'll just pray grace pray grace the grace which just fill your life not because it's you're weak not because you've done anything wrong but just because you recognise that you want to be there you want to be at the table so why don't we stand together and um, if you don't want to do that you don't want to come out for prayer that's fine but receive grace where you are the table is here God is here by His Spirit He wants to love you again don't bring your CV don't bring your portfolio just bring yourself okay just let God love you and if you want prayer if that will help you as a response then please just come love to pray for you this morning see what God does Amen